Hello, Charles Collinet with you on Afropop Worldwide from PRI, Public Radio International. Now, if you were to search for synthesizers in African music on the internet, you would somewhat unfortunately find out a whole lot about the American rock group Toto. And without disrespecting the 1983 Grammy winners, well, we'd like to believe that real synth music in Africa is quite a bit more interesting. As anyone who's listened to modern music from the continent can tell you, things have moved a long ways from the guitar and drum heavy groups that dominated the 60s and the 70s in so many African nations. Instead of high life or mbakanga, we have now kwaito. Kuduro. Azonto. And much more. As you can tell, all these musical styles rely heavily on the ability to create, to synthesize, if you will, electronic sounds. And for the most part, well, we think they are great. Of course, that hasn't always been a popular position. In fact, more than once we've heard musicians and critics argue that synthesizers have ruined African music. Well, we'll leave this judgment to you. Instead, we will ask, just how did synthesizers make their way into African music? Well, I'll tell you. The story is a bit different everywhere you go. In most cases, getting the technology there was just the beginning. In today's show, we will travel back to the 1980s in order to listen to some of the earliest synthesizer music made in Africa. We will hear how some very modern technology was integrated into some of the world's most complex musical cultures. But that's getting a little bit ahead of ourselves. For now, it's time to boogie. I need someone by the Nigerian singer and songwriter Chris Okoti. Baby, I'm sitting up, I'm right. 
George Collinet with you on Afropop Worldwide's Look Back at Synthesizers in African Music. When Chris Okoti's first record came out in 1980, the young law student became the single biggest star in Nigeria overnight, inspiring numerous copycats and changing the course of Nigerian music. Before Okoti's unprecedented success, the most popular bands tended to play funk, rock or reggae, not to mention Afrobeat and Fuji. After Okoti, Lagos had a new disco-fied sound, and with that sound came a whole lot of synthesizers. Remember, in those days, Nigeria was riding high on oil money and an exchange rate that set one naira to two dollars. Wow! It had entered a golden period that would last until the re-establishment of a military dictatorship in 1983. But for a brief window, the people were ready to party. Listen to the grooves on Listen to the Music by Bayo Damasio. That's real smooth. Now, this isn't to say that these slick sounds began the use of synthesizer in Nigerian music. That introduction, in fact, came from a rather unexpected source. And for the story, we turn to Uchena Ikone, writer and DJ who runs the Kamban Razor Sound label. It dates back to late 1975 when Jimmy Cliff, the reggae star, toured Nigeria. And when he came, he arrived with all the -the state-of-the-art gear. He had synthesizers, he had great instruments, great amplifiers. Now, when Jimmy Cliff was leaving Nigeria at the end of his tour, for some reason, I think it was some sort of customs reason, he couldn't take all his uh, gear with him. So it had to be sent back to EMI for storage since he was signed to EMI Records. So they just said they'll take care of it at the local office until it can be sent to him. So it languished there for a few months. Uh, After a while, somebody decided that, hey, let's just pull out some of those synths and play around with them. And then that's when you started hearing the, the, the synthesizer popping up on EMI Records. Coming in the middle of a musical arms race that saw the various Nigerian labels striving to build the most advanced multi-track studios, the introduction of synthesizers quickly spread throughout the industry, becoming fairly commonplace by the beginning of the 80s. 
funded by the enormous spending power of the oil economy and led by the independent label Phonodisc, the early 80s saw the Nigerian music business break wide open. Wealthy businessmen who saw music as glamorous and exciting began to invest their money on performers and imprints. The major labels that had previously dominated the scene never regained their former level of control. The studio arms race started in the early 70s when Ginger Baker came to Nigeria and built the first 16-track studio, which was called Arc Studio. Decca, soon after that, upgraded their studio, I believe, and the most ambitious studio of all was called Phonodisc, which was being built by the very popular Yoruba Apala musician named Haruna Ishola. And it took him several years to build his studio, and while he was still trying to build it, a lot of other entrepreneurs decided to get into the race to build this studio and to be the first one to have this 24-track modern studio. So Tabansi also went ahead and started building a studio. There was Rogers All-Star that started building a studio as well, and uh, apparently William Onyabo was also part of this race. Who is William Onyabor? Well, we'll get to him soon. But for now, this is Georges Collinet with you on Afropop Worldwide. And let's dance. I Want to Feel Your Love by Obi Onyoha. Well, as you can probably tell, these lavish multi-track studios marked a real change in Nigerian music, moving away from a long-standing focus on groups boogie tended to be recorded by solo artists, 
backed by crack studio bands, and many of these artists rarely or ever played live. Instead, they relied on the growing popularity of discos and DJs to promote their record sales. The result of changing styles and economic pressures, such as huge import taxes on music gear, was a general move away from live performance, something felt in cities across Africa. Luckily, an ever-increasing ability to record music was there to pick up the slack. And in order to help pay for their expensive new studios, labels did all they could to keep them booked, opening their doors to lesser-known artists and creating a wave of new acts, some talented, some ambitious, some decidedly odd. Amid all this rapid change, a businessman named William Onyabor would create some of the era's strangest and most innovative records. When the going is smooth and good, many, many people will be your friend. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. When the going is smooth and good, many, many people will be your friend. Back when the going becomes dark, many, many of them. of the boogie years, Onyobor began his career with tracks like Atomic Bomb and Beautiful Baby. While impressively funky, these songs were at most set apart by the unique intensity of the singing and didn't seem to be out of the ordinary, and maybe they weren't. But as time went on, Onyobor's fascination with futuristic sounds led him to a unique aesthetic. Recording in his own studio, Onyabor developed a sound not intended for live performance, and while his backing bands began a fairly conventional Nigerian funk groups, they became more and more based on synthesizers, ending up almost entirely electronic.
through layering, rippling melodic lines and intense vocals over the repetitive churns of a drum machine. Onyebor's later work didn't sound like anything else in Nigeria, and his approach bore fruit, bringing him a definite measure of popular success. We spoke with Ochena, who played a vital role in making the current Onyebor reissue campaign possible. At the time, there were not a lot of Nigerian musicians who were creating music that sounded as, uh, as futuristic as that. A lot of the sounds on the record, the, the, the synthesizer sounds, the drum machine sounds, the sounds that back then we, 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 com- we referred to as computer sounds, it wasn't as common at the time. So by the beginning of the 80s, I would say most pop artists were using uh, digital keyboards. At the time, there was still an effort to make artificial instruments sound somewhat organic. And in, in William Onyabo's more extreme efforts, he seems not to be bothered with that. He seems to want the, the artifice of the music. Hmm, fascinating. To read our full interview with Uchenna and to hear about the Onyebor reissue, well, be sure to check us online at afropop.org or follow us on Twitter at afropopww. And now, let's move nearby to Ghana. Bye. 
yes, that was Lee Dodu with Aquanqua, classic burger high life. And what is burger high life, you ask? Well, as its name might suggest, it's high life from McDonald's. Nah, not really. It's from Aberg, Hamburg, Germany, to be exact. And during the 80s, a community of Ghanaian immigrants had begun to mix the sounds of high life with the beat of disco replacing horn sections with keys and adopting the metronomic attack of the drum machine. As records and musicians gradually returned to Ghana, these electronic sounds increasingly made their way into the mainstream of Ghanaian music. Burger High Life sounded modern and international, but as in Nigeria, this synthesizer-heavy sound also made powerful economic sense replacing larger high-life groups with small combos augmented by electronics. A new generation of high-life bands was born. In Nigeria, synthesizers helped create a local version of disco's suave international sound. In Ghana, synthesizers reconfigured the national style high-life. Now let's hear more high-tech burger high-life from the king of the genre, Georges Darko.
Darko with his hit, Obe Abayewa. I'm Georges Collinet, and you're listening to Afropop Worldwide from PRI, Public Radio International. Now we head to South Africa, which was also switching towards a synthesizer-heavy sound during the early 1980s. Everybody was, I suppose. Its detractors may have labeled it bubblegum music, but it created a cosmopolitan, almost defiantly apolitical style that nevertheless provided the joyous soundtrack of the final years of apartheid. Bubblegum was a delirious fusion of American disco grooves prior incarnations of South African pop, reimagined folk traditions and cutting-edge technology. And it all started with a song that is, in essence, a blatant homage to American roller disco jams. Ladies and gentlemen, I give you the one and only Brenda Fassi and the Big Dudes with Weekend Special.
Wow, that's a classic weekend special by Brenda Fassi. Well, South African record labels had previously relied on importing hit records from the US, largely ignoring local talent. But the massive success of Weekend Special sparked a wave of domestically produced hits. With the bubblegum sound, South African pop music was reborn. By the group Splash. You know, South African musicians of the 80s were really doing what South African music has always done best, blending foreign and homegrown styles to create something unique. From South African jazz of the 40s and 50s to the bakanga of the 60s and the R&B influenced jive of the 70s, the pattern has remained. Synthesizers opened up a new set of rhythmic and melodic possibilities, but the music remained unmistakably South African. 
bubblegum artists were creating a new synthesis that would define the coming decade. Listen to the band synth and rhythmic flourishes from South African diva Yvonne Shaka Shaka.
What a voice. Yvonne Shaka Shaka with Songoma, referring to a traditional healer. Well, bubblegum music ruled the South African charts for almost a decade. But as the 90s progressed, apartheid ended and new styles emerged, notably the township-based dance music known as Kwaito. The story of Kwaito is a history in itself, but we leave South Africa with an early example from Spokes H with clear influences from American House and a groove slowed down to a crawl, the track has left bubblegum behind, becoming pure electronic dance music. our synthesizer tour of Africa in the far northeast, the unique musical landscape of Ethiopia. Ethiopian music has become well known to many Western listeners. Through seemingly endless reissues of music created during the golden age of the 60s and 70s, lesser known is what came after. Military rule did not mean the end of music. One notable example that has recently emerged is the album Hailu Mergia and his classical instrument, released by the label Awesome Tapes from Africa. Thank you. 
played keyboard in the legendary Walias band, but this record is far from the swinging ethio funk he usually played. Recorded entirely by himself in a studio, the album is a gentle, almost meditative suite of instrumentals, a nostalgic return to the music that defined the beginning of Ailu's career, all wrapped in a shroud of keyboards. Ailu Mergia currently lives and works in Washington, D.C., operating his own airport car service, Afropop co-producer Sam Becker reached him by phone while he was on the job. Hey, Hailu. Yes. Thank you so much for speaking with us. Yes. Um, so, to start with, how did you get the idea to record the album? Thirty years ago, I, I, I was uh, playing accordion. Okay? Mm-hmm. So, when I came here, I was playing organ. So, the accordion was, you know, almost uh, vanished. So, a friend of mine got a studio, and then I went to his studio, and then uh, I started recording only the accordion part with an erase machine, because I want to have a, a collection for myself, you know, because, uh, you know, I just want to have it uh, for a collection. So then when I record one melody, I love the melody with accordion. So uh, he showed me that she had a, a roach piano and uh, a moog synthesizer. And, and you just like the mixture? Definitely, because when you put those three sounds, they, they sound different. So that's what makes, uh, uh, you know, unique for this album. And uh, all of a sudden, instead of uh, recording one melody or two melodies in accordion, I have about eight songs. That's how the whole thing was uh, started and the whole thing was finished. Uh, how did you write the music? I mean, had you composed it beforehand or, or did you create it in the studio? All arrangement was done in the, in the studio. The uh, introduction and the passage or the improvisation, I created it there. But the melody, of course, the melody has been already old songs from Ethiopia. Some of them are traditional songs, like they call it public uh, song. Uh, some of them are composed by you know different people. And why synthesizers? Why didn't you just keep it traditional? Oh, because of the sound. Like I said, you know, because in the audience, they, they almost forgot the sound of accordion. And uh, the synthesizer is a kind of a new kind of sound. And uh, the electric piano, of course, uh, usually in Ethiopia we use a normal piano that is not the same sound like Fender piano. So the, the, this three combination with the, with the melody, so people, they love it because one, the melodies are good for the accordion. Two, the combination of all these instruments is a kind of like a new. That's why they like it. By the way, uh, I'm at work, okay? Okay. I'm driving my taxi. You see, I'm working at Dallas Airport. The customer, they came to me. Okay, yes. Okay, I will do Okay, that. bye. Thank you so much. All right. Thank you, Sam. Thank you, Hailu. Let's hear another track from Hailu Mergia and his classical instrument. This is Amru Demkyu.
Ailu Merga from his innovative 1983 recording, out now on Awesome Tapes from Africa. We caught up with Brian Shimkovitz, creator of Awesome Tapes from Africa, a label that has led the way in recovering and reconsidering synthesizer heavy music from Africa. We asked him what about Hailu's music caught and held his attention. I think that the shape of the music started to change after the 70s, and just from listening to it, uh, you know, we, we talk of the golden age with these groups that sound like they're really effortlessly blending uh, what we know of as jazz and soul into things that sound very, very regional and Ethiopian in nature. I think when you get into the 80s and there are more electronics and more synthesizers, uh, it takes on that less it takes on a less warm tone, just the music and the overall vibe. The earlier side of the collection has a lot of music that sounds a bit, you know, experimental, like people are just getting these new toys and trying new things, and some of it works, and some of it, some of it's, you know, the recording quality is really bad because parts of the bass are just way too hot and, you know, just peeking out and making things sound crazy. Other things are really ethereal and dreamy sounding, like I think this Highly record turned out. Um, so it's kind of a really exciting time in music that hasn't really been looked at or discussed that much, just kind of like the 80s in general across Africa where people were experimenting with these things um, and creating new sounds but kind of still using the approach and the harmonies and the rhythms uh, of what they were using just a few years before in what we think of as the golden age of these various places. Well, we couldn't have put it better ourselves. The story of the synthesizer in Africa is a story of experimentation, of cross-cultural and cross-genre fusion taking place at a fever pitch. It's also a story driven by economics, as African musicians were forced to adapt to a set of changes in the music industry that have only grown stronger in the years since. So, as much as we love the classic sounds of the 60s and 70s, Modern African music is really the child of the synthesizer groups of the 80s, and their patrimony is still being uncovered piece by piece. Well, personal taste aside, the deeper we delve, the better we can recognize the enormous variety and seemingly endless creativity of this vital era. And as we listen to present-day artists from across the continent, it is clear that synthesizers did anything but kill the music.
support for Afropop Worldwide comes from the National Endowment for the Humanities, the National Endowment for the Arts that believes a great nation deserves great arts, and PRI, Public Radio International affiliate stations around the U.S. And remember to support the station that brings you Afropop Worldwide. Additional support for Afropop Worldwide comes from the Apollo Theater, presenting Africa Now, celebrating South African culture with performances by Simpiwe Dana, The Soil, Tumi Molekane, and hosted by Hugh Masekela, October 9 to the 13th. More information, apollotheater.org. And from Carnegie Hall, presenting Ubuntu, a celebration of South African music and culture, including concerts by Ladysmith Black Mambazo, Hugh Masekela, Vusi Mahasela, Dave Matthews, and others. From October 2 to November 5th, More information at carnegiehall.org slash South Africa. Thanks to Uchena Ikone, Brian Shimkowitz, and Dave Derbag from the Afrosynth blog for their help with this program. Visit afropop.org for interviews, record reviews, videos, and more. You can also find us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at AfropopWW. My Afropop partner is Sean Barlow. Sean produces our program for World Music Productions. Research and production for this program by Sam Backer. And join us next time for Sud American Rockers, the Latin Alternative Music Festival 2013. Our chief audio engineer and co-producer is Michael Jones. Additional engineering by Mike Kaplan, Brandon Baker, and Stephanie LeBeau. Banning Air edits our website, afropop.org. Our producer for new media is Sam Backer. And I'm Georges Collinet. PRI, Public Radio International.